Hello, and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Dr. Lisa Bard-Levine served as the former CEO of The Maven Project, a telehealth nonprofit that supports primary care providers in developing comprehensive care to vulnerable patients at community health centers across the country. Her team recruits and retains a core of experienced volunteer physicians who work closely with frontline providers to educate, advise, and enhance local care capacity through provider-to-provider consults, one-on-one mentoring, and customized education sessions. Founded by alumni leaders from Harvard, Stanford, UCSF, Yale, and Tufts, the Maven Project's physician volunteers now represent over 40 medical specialties at over 90 community clinic sites for 765,000 patients. Dr. Levine has devoted her over 18-year healthcare strategy and consulting career to the advancement of provider alignment and engagement within U.S. payer and provider organizations. Her efforts have focused on helping physician leaders and professional managers form constructive partnerships to measurably improve clinical service and business performance for organizations facing the local challenges of healthcare reform. Dr. Levine received her BA from the University of Pennsylvania and received her MD and MBA from Tufts University. It's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast with us, Dr. Levine. Thank you so much for taking the time this evening to speak with us about your journey in building and leading the Maven Project. Tell us about your path from MD to CEO to now advisor. Great. Thank you so very much for having me. It's really a privilege and an honor. And I hope that through our conversation today, there can be some pearls of wisdom that come out that each one of you can take with you. Just to begin, my career path has been what I would call non-traditional. I tend to use the word opportunistic to describe it. Some of my career path really has involved being, I think, at the right place at the right time, taking some calculated risks, and making and maintaining strong relationships and networks along the way. My career has included a trajectory that has been looking left, looking a little bit right along the way, and has been willing to explore those turns. Other aspects of my career have been really discrete choices I've made, but really always answering the question, what if? So if the answer is, I'd like to know, the opportunity was worth exploring and possibly worth pursuing. And my feeling was you could always reroute your career back to the trajectory where you were going. But I'd never know what if, if I didn't explore those opportunities. But many of my friends and colleagues have taken a more traditional path in medicine, Um, you know, pre-med, undergrad, med school, residency, fellowship, job, very successful and often very satisfied. But my path started a little bit differently. I worked as a healthcare consultant for three years after undergrad at Penn and before medical school, really to have my eyes wide open to like the system I was going to work in. And my jobs ended up entailing fixing parts of the broken system along the way. So I worked at a healthcare consulting firm and then I was an internal strategist at the Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City. And then I enrolled in the Tufts MD MBA program. And after that, I completed my internship and started my residency in anesthesia at Mass General uh, Hospital here in Boston. And I got a call one day from the chief operating officer of a healthcare strategy, really national boutique consulting firm, which was started by my father called the Bard Group, but as chief operating officer, 
called me and he said, hey, Lisa, we're about to grow the organization. It's people, it's products, it's tools. How would you like to be part of this growth strategy? And I looked in the mirror and I said, what if I don't take this opportunity? And I thought it was a once in a lifetime opportunity to help grow really a unique and niche um, organization that was making significant strategic change around the country. And so I said, okay, I'm in, I'll, I'll give it a try. And so it was really a blessing and a privilege to help grow an organization that I both intellectually and I think a little bit emotionally was connected with. And, and the organization ended up growing and got acquired by an international corporation. And I worked there for several years. And then I joined a early stage population health redesign organization called Evelyn Health, which now is a publicly traded $1 billion and revenue organization, but really in the early stages of redesigning population health, when that was sort of the hot topic emerging focus in clinical care. And then ultimately came back to Boston to work at Commonwealth Care Alliance, which is a health plan and a healthcare delivery system that cares for the dual eligible population. So these are the both Medicare and Medicaid population that are both over 65 and under 65. And, and my job was the director of clinical value and quality. So how do we get the right resources to the right patients at the right time? And what was really clear to me was that this community had significant unmet needs. And getting the right resources to the right people at the right time was really a way to improve health outcomes and at the same time actually improve quality of life and decrease cost all at the same time. And I really got hooked on how you leverage innovation to meet the needs of vulnerable populations around the country. And I really saw that this is for me where I felt like I could make a significant impact. So I'm a builder and I built a bunch of departments and services at, at Commonwealth Carolines. And I found an opportunity to join the, the Maven Project, which is a nonprofit 501c3 telehealth organization that really pairs specialists and subspecialists, and which are alumni from the country's best medical schools with primary care clinicians serving uh, America's most underserved, again, leveraging telehealth. And I joined as the chief medical officer as a way of helping to build as an early stage, the program, the services, the physician volunteer corps. And a couple months into the role, I got asked to step in as and take over the role as CEO of the Maven Project. So for the last three years, I was the CEO of the Maven Project. And I made a personal decision to step aside um, just for work-life balance. And I'm now serving as the senior advisor to the CEO. Um, and the Maven Project is really this incredible organization that leverages physician experts across 50 specialties. And we connect them with primary care providers that care for vulnerable communities and in areas as well as really urban medical deserts, connecting them with communities that seek care and community health centers that are really understaffed and under-resourced. Wow, that's incredible. It seems like you've really forged your own path within healthcare, which is very unique these days. It seems that you also have had a wide variety of roles within the Maven Project itself. So now, what would you say a day in the life looks like for you? That's a great question. So my answer would be no two days look alike. And no two days, in my opinion, should look alike if you're building something new and if you're innovating. And what a wise colleague of mine shared with me was that if you're solving a different problem each day, that means you're making progress, despite the frustrations it may bring. If you're solving the same problem each day, you may not be making progress. So what does that, what does my day look like? 
I think for me, the first question was like, figure out, are you a morning person or an evening person and accept what that looks like and then coordinate your day around that. So I have accepted I am a morning person. I get my best work done in the morning. I get up really early and I don't try to do too much innovative work in the evening because it will always require significant work or rework when I'm fresher. So wake up early, check emails, get some work done. And then I bring my kids to school, which now means doing wellness checks and making sure everyone has three-ply masks. And then I participate in Zoom meetings, develop presentations, deliver presentations, network, listen or participate with in policy calls with organizations like the American Telemedicine Association and the CDC. And then I try to squeeze in a little exercise, maybe running or Peloton, attempting to get dinner on the table, spending time with my kids in the evening and baking in the evening. And my new obsession is making hot cocoa bombs and I give them to people as gifts. But for me, trying to create balance on a daily level is hard and perhaps, in my opinion, like mission impossible. I've adjusted my goals and expectations for myself, which I think is a hard task at hand, and now really seek to create balance on average on the daily level. So I know that this accounts for days when there isn't balance. But on the other hand, when I look back at a week, Perhaps the average day is balanced, but some days can look quite different than others. And I've learned perhaps the hard way to write down all calendar and all commitments, personal and professional on one calendar. I used to try to keep those separate and felt like perhaps it wasn't okay to have family commitments or child commitments or personal commitments, but you know, it is okay. And it's, it's expected and it's great, but now I think one calendar of everything just helps you keep your day and your life organized and gives you a clear view of what the day brings. And I've also found just as note with COVID, there's a little bit of breathing room and understanding when you're taking a call, for example, from home, if the dog barks, that's just part of what life looks like right now. And, and it's okay. Switching gears here a little bit, we came across a recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine regarding the human touch in medicine and the importance of addressing the healthcare workforce amidst the pandemic. Tell us about how the MAVEN project ensures the sanctity of the physician-patient relationship despite being a virtual telehealth solution. The MAVEN project is a provider-to-provider model. So our physician volunteers provide expertise via telehealth technology to frontline providers that are serving patients in community health centers around the country. We do not work directly with with a patient. So there, in some of my responses, you'll hear our model is nuanced in that the patient doesn't directly connect with the volunteers at the Maven Project, but they benefit from the pearls of wisdom and the advice that our seasoned volunteers provide those who are at the forefront of delivering local, really culturally competent care. So the patient-provider relationship, in my opinion, is critical, but in my opinion, it also is critical to be local and culturally competent. So that people have trusted relationships in their local community provider who understands their culture, their resources, and what's gonna drive them and what's gonna prohibit them from achieving the health outcomes they're looking for. So our goal is to bring resources in to that anchor person in the community and use that anchored primary care provider as the nucleus for providing really enhanced care to the community with this virtual network of experts that they have at their fingertips. 
how do you incentivize these volunteer physicians to participate and how do you source them? So in terms of recruiting the volunteer physicians, this is an incredible group of seasoned doctors at various stages of their career. Many of them are working part-time or thinking about retiring or recently retired that hear about us through medical school alumni associations, professional associations, word of mouth, public relations. We are featured on PBS NewsHour and Oprah's Magazine last year, the New England Journal article, for as you referenced. And what we found is that this group of doctors want to give back. They want to flex the muscles that they've developed their whole careers. They want to work at the top of their license without the onerous paperwork that's kind of bogged them down in clinical practice. And they also want to become part of a community, which is what we do for them at the Maven Project. They become part of a community where we anchor social events and collaborations amongst them, in addition to partnering them with the clinics that we're partnered with. But I can tell you that in all of the chaos of certainly magnified this year, there are so many incredible people that are so generous and willing to give their time and expertise. It does not keep me up at night. Are we going to find enough doctors that are willing to volunteer their skills and expertise? And when they join us, we interview them really carefully. We do a rigorous credentialing process. We actually do a technology assessment to make sure they can use the virtual platform that we use, and we try to bring them on and make them part of our community. But there are many, many doctors out that are willing to volunteer. And they do range from people that have significantly more time on their hands that are recently retired to people that are working in biotech that still want to flex those muscles, but they have a full day job. And then we also have some volunteers that have a full-time clinical job that just say, look, this is the way I can give back. These are the skills I've developed. And this is an opportunity that really taps into that for me. That is so interesting how you're able to coordinate and integrate people at so many different stages of their career and create a community out of it and honestly give people a lot of meaning as well as they're able to serve these communities that are typically very much underserved. We wanted also to ask about the partnerships that you build with these community health centers and how do you go about accessing their patient population and also maintaining that cultural competence that we talked about earlier that is very much at the community level. Yeah, so community health centers, and these are federally qualified healthcare centers, free and charitable clinics and clinics like that, hear about us through a variety of venues, whether it's presentations and speaking opportunities, word of mouth, so clinics talk to each other and hear about the wonderful resources around the Maven Project. Foundations and associations also help to foster introductions. So we meet with prospective clinical partners and we learn about them and we learn about their needs. What are their patients' needs? What are their providers' needs? What are the challenges that they have to accessing specialty care? Where are their medical deserts for certain specialties? Where is geography or insurance magnifying barriers to access to care? We meet their staff. We meet their leadership. We learn about the community need. Is it an area hit by natural disaster? Is it an area that's geographically just really isolated? Is it an environment where there are a lot of new providers that are newer to practice? Is there a shortage of expertise in certain areas, certain specialties? And what are the typical wait times? In some communities that we serve, the wait time for certain specialty access is months to literally never. 
And so we assess for these clinics, the level of their engagement and readiness for a new initiative, in addition to like, do they have a need for these services? Um, from our experience, you know, we know that they have to be ready to take on something new. Well, the lift isn't significant to launch these, the services that the Maven Project provides, which is medical consultations, one-on-one -on -one mentoring, and educational sessions. It's something new and it leverages technology. For our services, there isn't new equipment needed. You can use anything that you have normally in a clinic or on you. The readiness is really a critical factor for getting started. So if a clinic is so overburdened with some other initiative that they can't spend a little bit of time and effort focus on this, this may not be just the right time, despite them having a significant need. So we make sure that all those pieces line up in forming partnerships. I was also wondering what happens when a patient that is a patient of these community health centers and involved in the MAVEN project when they have some type of emergency or they need inpatient services? How does that communication continue throughout the cascade of care that this patient needs access to? That's a great question. So I'll take a step back, which is the frontline primary care providers working in the community health centers that we partner with are our end users for our services. And these are doctors, MDs or DOs, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants. And those primary care providers form really trusted relationships with our physician volunteers. Whether it's just audio only or video, I think enhances often the ability to develop and foster relationship. But through those trusted relationships, our volunteers provide advice and expertise and educate the frontline providers to really raise the knowledge capacity that they have in a sustainable kind of learning model. And so at the end of the day, our volunteers literally provide advice and suggestions for how the primary care provider may think about or may want to consider whether it's evaluating or managing a patient's condition. The primary care provider is always accountable for the care of the patient. So if a consult arises that is concerning, the volunteer works with the primary care provider to make sure that that concern and level of urgency or emergent uh, nature is addressed. But the, the PCP is the one who anchors all next steps around whether it's, you know, inpatient care, emergency room visit, whatever it is. So our volunteers can triage or flag an issue and then communicate that effectively to the primary care provider. But that local provider is accountable for all forms of care for the patient. That is a very interesting. It also makes a lot of sense that you will want to keep the responsibility within the hands of the provider that's really seeing that patient in the long term. How do you measure Maven Project's impact and sustainability? So in my experience, collecting data really is the critical success factor to demonstrating impact and identifying truthfully operational and quality issues that need to be addressed from all users of a system or for the Maven Project, all users of our, our platform, from the volunteer physicians to the clinic primary care providers that use the platform. So the data that's collected 
includes a couple different types. One is what I call activity data, the number of activities that are accomplished. They can be process measures even. The next one is performance met, uh, data. So like how well are you accomplishing those tasks? The next one is impact or outcome data. So what impact are you making? And then the fourth one is case studies. And for me, this is really a critical one, which is humanizing your results and translating that to what does that look like and feel like for individuals, for communities. And so how we collect the data is generally, whether it's with a medical consult or a one-on-one -on -one mentoring session, we use pop-up surveys that that are linked directly to the encounter on our telehealth platform. And we can also send surveys to groups after group educational sessions, which are delivered over Zoom or Zoom webinar um, to gather data on activity and impact. And in addition, I also think that having an external lens and helping to sort of quantify some of the impact is very, very helpful. So we were fortunate enough to have a pro bono consulting relationship with McKinsey and Company. And they helped us quantify some of the impact of our services including things like cost savings, projections, and they helped us model out what we call the multiplier effect, which is really the idea that these clinical pearls that are transferred between our physician volunteer experts and primary care providers are pearls that can be applied to not just one case at hand, but so many cases that look similar to that case. And so the multiplier effect is that the MAVEN Project Volunteer provides knowledge that can be applied to up to really 19 patients conservatively that year. So if you think about a 10-minute encounter between a primary care provider and a clinic and one of our volunteers, and some clinical pearls are gained that then can help 19 patients in a year, that's a huge return on investment of your time and, and you know, just really sustained learning. In addition, so just as some examples of the data that we collect with these pop-up surveys, so almost 70% of the time, the medical consults that we set up really help the primary care provider and the patient and actually avoid a referral for a patient to a specialist who ordinarily would have been sent out of the clinic. So again, for many of these communities, the wait time can be 12 months and beyond to see specialists. And if you can avoid that entirely and manage the care sooner and earlier, that's significant for the patient, for stress, for disease burden, uh, et cetera. Almost 100% of our consults provide education that can be applied, applied to future patients. And then we also have data like the average experience with our physician volunteer is like a 4.9 out of five. So all of those data buckets or categories help us identify what's going well and what needs to be addressed now and what needs to be addressed at like a much more like strategic level. So some is, you know, red flag operational, like something's not working. And some is like, what is the impact longer term from these services? I really like how you talk about gathering these different data in terms of impact in different buckets. And I think it makes sense to think about it in that way because there's so many things that need to be assessed in any organization. And I think that a lot of our listeners who may be starting organizations would really benefit if you could share with them some advice in terms of formally assessing their platform or their solution. Great question. To start with, and I perhaps I've learned this the hard way throughout my career, but be clear about what success looks like and how you want to measure it and how you want to capture the data. Um, and while that sounds simplistic, it often requires taking a step back and taking a clear look at, okay, how are we going to truly define success? And 
what are we going to use as measures or proxy measures to assure we're on the right track or that we're achieving that outcome? And then also collecting data to really demonstrate impact and identify issues, how to understand if and how your platform or your solution is working. And then again, from things that have worked and things that haven't worked in my past career, test, test, and test, pilot, and try to break any system or any solution that you are using or you are developing before you go live. Literally try to break it because fix any weak point that you experience before you go live and ensure systems are in place to evaluate data that you're getting around operational changes that need to be made, strategic adjustments that need to be made based on data and feedback. And then kind of back to your question around the emergency, I call it like an escalation protocol. So what do you do when you have some a patient that's sicker than you would like? That the escalation protocol is the primary care provider anchors that and addresses it locally in the community. For your platform or your solution, you also need to have the escalation protocol of what do you do when X, Y, or Z happens and have those plans in place. Also, fix issues quickly and communicate often and through as many modalities as you can until people say like, oh my God, I've heard this too many times. You haven't communicated enough. And then also my experience, celebrate success and communicate. Again, especially, particularly in this time when we're not all physically together, you've got to find ways to communicate and get creative about it. Uh, We'd love to hear more about how you are able to drive this sustainable impact for vulnerable patient populations through your nonprofit structure. Would you be able to expand a little bit more on your business model for our listeners? Sure. So the Maven Project is a 501c3 nonprofit that is really funded primarily through philanthropy, which is individual and family foundation grants and some limited earned revenue from organizations who are able to contribute to the operating cost. And the cost for the Maven Project includes everything from telehealth support to credentialing and malpractice insurance coverage for our volunteers. And funding from our experience is really a rate-limiting factor for growth and scaling. And so what we share is that our job isn't done until every community around the country has access to the services that the Maven Project can provide. We do need to pair that with funding, whether it's grants or philanthropy that can help fuel that engine. And speaking more about the growth of the Maven Project, it's been amazing to hear about how the organization has scaled to 90 community clinic sites and currently serves over 700,000 patients. Could you expand on your growth strategy? I would say the first piece is the need exists and the need is magnified given the effects of COVID. So pre-COVID, we saw almost 100 million around this country who were on or underinsured, who sought care in community health centers. And, you know, they were really our, our target communities. And certainly that still remains the same. But the challenge is that now over the past year, we have over 50 million new Americans that have lost their jobs that have become underinsured or have lost their health insurance. We've asked patients to like delay care. And in doing that, there are some places where that may not make a clinical difference. And there are other places where we've actually not intervened early enough and the conditions have progressed. And at the same time, we have taken a workforce that is historically fragile and we have burned it out 
with the worry about PPE and getting COVID and that workforce is shrinking and the community health centers that we work with, that we, if they do generate revenue, have seen that decline because the patient volume has come down because we've asked patients to stay home. And so what that looks like right now for the country is that we have a growing population that's increasingly un and underinsured that is seeking care in these communities health centers with conditions that are now further along than they may have been when we ideally would have seen them sooner with a set of community health centers that is under-resourced and understaffed. And for me, this keeps me up at night. That landscape to me has just exploded for where the need is to really access timely care, timely knowledge, timely expertise. And at the same time, our services support and stabilize frontline primary care providers. So we've got these mentoring programs, which are really designed to be an independent, confidential, non-judgmental source of support for frontline providers. And having a go-to person that's not part of your clinic, that's safe and that's experienced to like run questions by them. And so what keeps me up at night is that the, that our services are not everywhere yet. However, when we think about growth and scaling, again, going back to where does the need exist? We're in 13 states. So trying to create a larger footprint within a state and then also expanding to geographies that have unmet need that could benefit from our services. We also look to align funding with expansion. So we, if we can couple those two, that's a win-win that enables us to expand in certain geographies. But really, at the end of the day, our goal isn't done until all communities who need us have access to our services. So it seems like you've really adapted to the pandemic in terms of scaling appropriately and pulling back in certain areas to ensure that patients receive the best outcomes, which is very impressive. Do you have any pearls for our listeners who are thinking about expanding their organization with respect to when they should be thinking about expansion, when it's maybe okay not to expand? Yeah, in my experience, growth requires what I call the seesaw approach to supply and demand. When you're in early growth and scaling or building, it's this constant seesaw between ensuring you have enough demand for your services and enough supply of the resource to deliver to the demand. And you don't want to get too far behind the eight ball because if your demand is so much greater than your supply, you'll burn out those that are providing the supply, and you'll upset people that are demanding a service that can't be accessed. And if you have the seesaw too far the other way, you've overstaffed for a demand that hasn't met the supply yet. So it's this seesaw of making sure that you're keeping track of both sides of the demand for whatever you're you're building and your workforce supply. And At the same time, I think always keeping a pipeline of critical roles and individuals that you can tap as needs evolve. So I'm always thinking about what are the next couple of roles the organization will need? And as I meet people, and again, networking and keeping up those professional networks is critical because healthcare is a very small world, but always having a lens for like what roles you might need and who may be either connected to that space or even potentially fill those roles or have peers like themselves that could fill those roles are always sort of on the horizon of thinking about. 
Dr. Levine, it has been such a pleasure to spend this evening talking to you. And our time is unfortunately coming to an end, but we have one last question. We wanted to know, what do you think is the key attribute that healthcare leaders need to succeed and why? Great question. I think that really the key attribute, although this is attributes, is really flexibility and adaptability. So keeping your eyes and ears wide open. The healthcare system is broken. COVID has magnified and exposed so many aspects of the system that aren't working well or equitably. And when you're implementing a solution, you've got to have your eyes wide open and be flexible and adaptable to anticipated and unanticipated issues that arise along the way. So be ready, be staffed. The flexibility and adaptability, I think, requires you to have a a bench of mentors and advisors that you can tap, really, for external advice, support, even validation. And being able to really understand your environment enables you to be flexible and adaptable. So understanding what local, federal, global policy looks like, what the environment looks like, enables you to make changes and anticipate really strategically in advance what you need to do to position yourself to be successful given the environment and where it's going. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at ThiaHC, and on our website at ThiaHC.org for more content and to join our vibrant community of young professionals, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders in healthcare. Special thanks to our amazing audio editors, Ellie Park, Asim Jain, Nikita Gupta, and Katie Donahue. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting our podcast by donating at anchor.fm slash thea-hc slash support.